0: This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. One of my favorite things is to be able to share with you what goes on in my life during the week. I'm a very active dating coach and dating mentor. And some of the lessons that I jot down that I want to share with my live audience and my cyber audience. Seven things you need to let go of in dating. Number one, let go of the idea that you're going to find 100% of what you're looking for in the opposite sex. We're not saying that you should lower your standards we're saying that no one is perfect, as we say, "perfect is the enemy of good." One of the biggest mistakes that I see in dating is that someone rejects the date because they didn't meet all of their expectations. Or today I was just funny. I was in Shul and I happened to have seen the husband, a very prominent shotgun right here in Flapush. So he says to me, "How's it going with your program to build the Bakr? You know, build the beer." People want to build the perfect guy today, or the perfect or the perfect girl, and unfortunately, that's what's going on. We're being How would would I say We're being poisoned by the toxicity of the Western media. And the expectations are so out of control. And he and I were just laughing about how today people reject pictures or people or profiles. Not my look. Not my look. Well, how do you know what your look is? I went with my wife 30 years ago. It was a blind date. No one told me what she looked like. You know? It was just a matter of common chemistry, common hashkafah, common goals. At the time... I mean, always all my life. But my Rebbe was a giant, a Rigmund Miller. And I was looking for an individual, a woman, who shared the same love and passion for his Torah as I did. Of course, Gashmius is important and other things are important. But it comes down to your hashkafah, common goals and common values. I'm going to really get into that tonight. But that's what you should be looking for, but not perfection. I've had several clients who have been dating for, year, for years specifically because of this erroneous mindset. Here's another fantastic situation that I couldn't, I couldn't believe. I had a guy in front of me, 34 years old, a really wonderful, kind guy with a great job. And he said to me, I don't mind dating older. So I got a girl on the phone that I've been mentoring for a year, I haven't seen her about a year. And I said, listen, there's a great guy out there, she's 38, he's willing to date you? No, too young for me. I said, what are you, out of your mind? 38 years old, what are you thinking? makes no sense know which items are on your list are non-negotiable and know which are negotiable don't give in on your values of course not values are critical values comes from the word hashkafah in English hashkafah means which path which direction are you looking at comes from the word mishkafahim which means glasses I need glasses to determine which way to look so do we have common values and common goals that could be a problem if your values are really really off And I've had a situation this week where a girl wants to date a guy, totally not observant. I said, what are you going to do on Shabbos? He's going to get into the car to go play tennis, and you're going to go to shul. You can't have that. I'll build him up. No, what you see is what you get. You better have someone close to you, religiously. I have a situation right now on the West Coast. I I deal with a lot of Shalom bias issues. The woman walks 3.2 miles to Shul to go on Shabbos. And he is playing with his cell phone. And he drives there at 10.45 to enjoy the Kiddush. So you can't... And no wonder they have problems with their kids. And they've had the police come in four times to break up fights. No wonder. When you don't have common values together. together, And you don't have a common path in terms of your life. Well, the children are going to be so confused. The result being that the father is really more in control, and, 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 as a, and, and the choice of education is the local gan chayos, otherwise known as the public school, or as we know in Hebrew as the zoo. And then what do you think they're imbibing from there? Certainly not Torah values. So we have a very potent situation there. Determine which things are nice, but face it, what's not essential. At the end of the day, you can let go if the person is a little taller or shorter than you have liked. I had that today. Two people rejected individuals who are short, uh, an inch shorter. People are so vain today. So fragile. It's amazing. Same thing goes with age and where they're from. I'm mean, going to give you a little story on that too. On taller. Two. Let go some of the hours at work. Or whatever it is that keeps you so busy. Singles tell us they want to get married. But they're not making dating a priority. Absolutely true. Absolutely I've had an individual who tells me don't call me after 9 o'clock a woman who's 30 years old because I go to sleep what? expect to get married? put dating at the top of the list many people today are very career oriented and it's okay however the years fly by because they don't make the time to be able to take care of their dating needs it's important to take the time and set aside time for your self-care take good care of yourself Which will enable you to become your best self. Go to the gym, take a rest, listen to inspiring shiurim, listen to some music, do some yoga, do some travel, take care of yourself. So you have what we call a balanced physical and emotional well-being. Three. Let go of thinking that you're in this alone. You're not in it alone. While ultimately you decide who you spend the rest of your life with. Don't be afraid to ask trustworthy friends or a dating mentor. Or a rabbi for advice. Baruch Hashem, I'm very busy because people are listening to this particular piece of advice. Yes, they tell me, years ago we didn't need people like you, but today there's a need for a good dating mentor more than ever. Life has gotten so confusing. People have lost their priorities. People are lost today in, in, in the forest of life. Consulting with someone that you trust, who has your best interests at heart, and who knows what they're doing, when you have doubts, will give you the clarity that you're looking for. This happens to me a lot. Many people call me or contact me because they're not sure about a certain relationship or not sure what to be looking for. I set them straight by listening to them, by asking them questions, by doing an intake history. I get an idea of who they are and what do they need. Then I make it clear to them and I say to them, this is what you need. It happens to me, by the way, that the woman who contacted me yesterday, the divorced lady, the minute I, she told me who she was dating with, uh, and, but she was unsure because of what she heard about him from the people, the rabbis from his previous divorce, I said, you're perfect for him. I could see right away because I, knew, I, I, I saw her personality and from my experience, I know what it makes, takes to, for people to click. So it's important to get that neutral expert in the, in the picture that also what they're doing to help so that you can now bounce it off of them. Let go of ingratitude, a huge biggie. One of the biggest things that I care about and one of the most important things that I advise is that people read the gratitude uh, document, the gratitude uh, prayer every day. If you need it, just WhatsApp me, 305-206-1916. I'll send you a picture of it. You should do it every day. And as well, I tell them, please make up a list of 50 things that you're grateful for. One list, one time, and verbalize that list every day. And say it at the beginning of the day. I wouldn't tell you to do anything that I don't do myself. So that's very important. Okay? It's very important to do the gratitude list. Very important. Okay, now. The secret to happiness is appreciation. The minute we focus on all that we do have, as opposed to what we're lacking, the world is a much better place, a much happier place. Number six, let go of your need for something to happen immediately. It's got to happen now. I'll never forget this year, a woman came into me that I had mentored a little bit. She says, you know what? I got to get married by like Balmer. So much so, she went and put a deposit on a, on, on, on a hall. And she told the caterer, get ready to, to cater. I said, let me just change your name. Judy, I don't think what you did was very smart. First of all, where's the guy? You know, we, it takes two to tango over here. Unfortunately, she had to call it off two days before. But don't put any, any benchmarks on Hashem. Don't, don't, no timetables. He has the right time for everyone. Notice that I can practically list a site, an example for everything here. You know, thank God, there's several. Okay, now, so again, let go of your need for something to happen immediately. Be flexible and trust everything will come in its right time. Remember, Hashem is ultimately running the show. You may meet the one when you're looking for, when you're looking or perhaps when you're not looking. Either way, you'll enjoy the process more if you can be flexible with what happens in your dating life. Just let go. Let Hashem run the show. Do the best that you can. Go to work. Go to shi'urim. Take care of yourself. Exercise. Eat right. Do chesed. Be involved. It'll happen on its own. Do the gratitude thing. It's so important. Thank you Hashem for 50 things, including thank you Hashem that I'm single. Or thank you Hashem that I'm divorced. Say thank you for the difficulty itself. By saying thank you for the difficulty itself, what you're doing is acknowledging that Hashem runs your life perfectly. And that you're grateful for the way He runs it. And you're also showing Hashem that whatever He does is for the best. And as a result, Hashem says, you're getting the message, now I can send you the Yeshua. Now you'll get your salvation. Okay, now, let go of thinking dating is going to be a quick, smooth process, with no bumps along the way. If that was the case, why would Chazal comparing it like splitting the sea? It's obviously one of the most challenging Territories of your life, so expect it. There'll be bumps along the way. Okay, relationships require a lot of time and effort. They need to be nurtured and incubated and coddled. And I think today, more than ever. By the way, I should—I just want to let you know that this this couple that was that's been that's dating, right, was now doing a uh, relationship with a shatran. Because they met online. I said to them, you know what, to spare it, to preserve this thing, let me become the Shatkin here. So that we can ensure that you are, everyone's protected. The Shatkin, if they know what they're doing, can save the relationship. Case in point, she was ready to get rid of the guy. And I said to her, I know the guy, and I can speak for the person. So a good Shatkin is a great traffic manager. They can take problems and smash them. They can see bumps in the road and flatten them. Or they can tell you the honest truth that he or she is not for you. You should move on. That's their role in life. But if you go at it alone, if there's a problem, you're going to just eventually leave. You look for the first exit and you're out. Whereas someone could have gone in there and fixed the problem. Okay, now, there is no magic click of the button that will bring instantaneous results. The Gemara tells us, according to the effort, is the word, the Fun Agra. It takes effort to have a successful date. It takes money. It takes whatever it takes. But it'll be well, well worth it at the end if it's done properly and it's managed effectively. While there are things that are beyond your control, you have the ability to navigate through the dating process with just a little bit of guidance and some management. Okay. Now, some key things that I want to really review. Five steps that'll help you have clarity through the dating process. Shh. Keep it silent. Don't tell anyone. That you're dating, except for your parent and your dating coach. That's it. I always tell the girls, especially the girls, because they like to talk, it's me and your mother. Finished. No one else has to know anything. Don't talk about your dates with people. You need a minimum of one person to talk things out with, and ideally no more than three. Because what happens? People have their own, you know, expectations. And everyone has their motives when they talk to you. Maybe that person wants to get married, so they're going to stech the your relationship. Maybe there's jealousy. Maybe there's iron horror. Why do you need to subject your relationship to anything like that? Unless it's a trusted advisor that you know doesn't have anything, no axe to grind. There's, okay. And ideally, no more than three. Too many cooks will spoil the broth, and will only end up confusing you. These might be a spiritual. Fi- there might be a spiritual figure in, in life, like a parent, a married friend, or a dating mentor. Sharing things with all your single friends also makes it difficult. They may not have any more clarity than you do. If you talk to too many people about the person you're dating, it becomes very difficult to have clarity because everyone's voice will be chiming in your head and your own voice will be drowned out. All you'll have is utter confusion. The more people that find out about your dating, the more confused you'll get. You have to have one expert, and if you trust your parent or you're close to them, and that's it. Two, you've got to know what your strengths and weaknesses are. You only truly know a person well when you can identify the good and the not so good about them. Write down five things you like and five things you dislike about the person you're dating. I always tell my, my, my clients, when you go out on a date, every date when you come home, I want you to do the following. Write down the things you like that they did or they said, Number two, write down the things that are questionable, that they did and that they said. And three, write down the things that they did that were not acceptable to you, that they did and that they said. And review them with me when we speak in the morning. (coughs) And that will help you decide if there's real potential for a relationship, or is it just plain infatuation. People who are infatuated can only see the good in the person they're dating. But as experts tell us, infatuation rarely lasts between 60 to 90 days, if that. Being able to see the person as a, as a human with faults is a sign that you're generally getting to know them. Three, own your timing. It's challenging to have clarity when too much time passes between dates. It's also hard to have clarity when the date is very long. So the rule of thumb is no more than five days between dates. You have to have consistency. Spend no more than five hours on each date and commit yourself that you will give it two or, or, or more dates before saying no. Unless the first date is an absolute bomb. Meaning, I can never get used to this person's physical attraction. Our hashkafas are so different that we can never live together. We have such different expectations out of life that there's absolutely no way he or she can, either be, can either be, ever be my soulmate. Other than that, give it some time. People are not always comfortable on the first date. Sometimes they're shy. Sometimes they don't open up, they don't open up right away. Sometimes they're sick. Sometimes they had a bad day at school or at work. So you have to give it a little bit of leeway for the first date. By committing to giving it a few dates before deciding whether or not to continue, you won't have to spend time after every date weighing the decision. This means you'll be able to relax more on each date and just be in the moment without having to analyze, oh, look what he or she said. What did they mean when they rolled their eyes that way? So instead of analyzing every little micro event at the date, you can relax because you've told yourself, unless it's an absolute bomb, I'm in it for two to three dates minimum. Four, spice it up. Try to see the person in different contexts by doing different activities on each of, the, of, these, of, of your dates. And that's so true. One of the things that prevents people from getting to know other individuals when they date them is because they do the same repetitive dating thing again and again. Another dinner, another dinner, another dinner. It happens to be tonight I was talking to a client who did this. Four dinners in a row. I said, no, no, no. Tomorrow, Dave and Buster's. That's it. We need something else. The more you change the venue, the more you see the person in a different context. The more things will come out will come out that may not have come out if it's the same style event all the time. So one night it's a paint night, and one night it's Stave and Buster's, one night it's a romantic dinner, one night it's a walk under the Brooklyn Bridge, another night is uh, do City in, in Miami, wherever you live. Things like that. So you have to change it up. A museum if that's your thing, an indoor garden like we have the winter, winter Garden in Manhattan. Change it up. The more you change the venue, the more connectivity you'll get emotionally. And that's important. Five. Very important. Keep physical touch out of the equation. This is a big challenge. Especially in the divorce world, where they feel compelled that they have to do things, where they have to have a more, let's call, more intimate situation going on. No, 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 absolutely not. You know what happens when a woman gets touched? Her endorphins, which is a hormone that she has in her body, floods her bloodstream, and now she feels like she's madly in love. That's not the case at all. It could be that she's only on date number two, but she's her body's giving her the siman, the feeling that she's already almost at the end of the game. For her, that's the feeling. For him, it's just pure conquest. So, be careful. Don't do that. When it comes to clarity, this point is the most beneficial. No touching before marriage. Yeah, As soon as touching is involved, your clarity goes right out the window. People often ignore red flags because of a physical connection. It's not a conscious choice, because when they make that physical connection, they have, they're duped into thinking that they're closer than they really are. Now they stop looking and investigating the real things that you need to look at, in order to ensure that the person doesn't have any deficiencies. By touching, what you do is you cut the book in half, you don't do the due diligence properly, and as a result, you make horrific mistakes. Once physical touch is introduced into a relationship, we cannot undo it, and it's unnecessarily confusing to figure out why you're staying in a relationship. I had a case like this in Yerushalayim, by the way, last year, where there was a little too much touching going on, right? And I said, I said to the guy, you know, you're a good guy, but you're creating a lot of confusion for you and her. Stop the touching. And he did. He listened to me. He stopped the touching. It put the relationship back right on course. They got engaged and went right to marriage. So it's very important. It's because of the value on the inside. So you have to maintain those values. Now I want to read you a beautiful story about of how one person found his taller older kala. Growing up in the young the youngest in a large family I watched my older siblings find their spouses and waited my turn to search for my own soulmate, Bashart. In my family, we wait for our older siblings to marry before entering into shidduchim. My brother above me had been dating for several years, but had not yet found his zivog. When I turned 25, he approached me and told me, you have my bracha, my dear younger brother, to go ahead and begin dating. That's nice of him. I had a case recently of a Hasidisha guy who had an older brother that was divorced and wouldn't let anyone else date. So we had a 27-year-old girl, a 29-year-old girl. We had 26 set of twins. It, was, it just wreaked havoc on the, whole, on the whole family. Finally, when one of them came to me, the mother came to me, I said, he has no right to do that. You should just bypass this guy. And they did, and they listened to me. I was serious. I was a studious student who loved to learn Torah, and I was inquisitive about the world around me. My family knew I was on the shyer, quieter side. And I wanted to find a girl who would appreciate and compliment my introspective nature. So he was a type B, a a boy. When I envisioned my kala, I imagined the girl, like me, was a thinker who had insatiable curiosity about the world. As my parents and siblings networked and began searching for my soulmate, I quietly did my own ishtabas, my own effort. Before I even went out, I made a conscious effort to identify what, did, what really mattered to me. What am I looking for? Ask yourself these questions. The more work you do when you're dating, the easier it is, and the more successful you are when you actually date, and you go right to the chuppah. So you can recognize wh- her when you meet her. After a lot of introspection, I realized I wanted to find a young woman who was kind-hearted, mature, outgoing, and intellectually curious, but traditional in her observance. At five six, I'm on the shorter side, which is pretty, a little on the short side for a man. So my family questioned how important it was to me that I be taller than my collar. I told them it made no difference to me. Superficial criteria like that made no difference to me. I didn't care. I have to find the girl with whom I could be myself. That's key. That's one of the things that I look for. When you're dating that person, do you feel like yourself? or are you pretending? Can you do they get you and do you get them? Those are more important things that, than how tall they are. Could I have them sh- and share a deep, meaningful relationship with her? Now we're talking. While these clear guideposts, with these clear guideposts in place, I started dating. I went out with two girls, but they didn't have the core characteristics I was searching for. One of my older sister-in-law's friends, Shulamis, was visiting from out of town on Shabbos, and ate by her and my brother for Shabbos Se'uda. It occurred to my brother, she might be an idea for me. But when he suggested it to my older brothers and sisters, they were conflicted. Shalamis was an incredibly smart, talented, mature, and outgoing 28-year-old girl. Not, was, not only was she three years older, she was also 5'9", three inches taller. So we've got three years older, three inches taller. My siblings figured she might intimidate or overpower me, who, but, and I was an introspective, quiet bacher. But Shalamis' height and age made no difference to me. There is a guy with a sechel yashar, a clear mind. My goal was to find a wife I could really connect with. And if that girl was a little older or taller, who cares? I'm fine with that. I pressed them to read the shidduch until they relented and read the shidduch for me. Shalamis agreed to meet me, and on our first date, I knew my resolve to meet her had been well worth it. I was immediately attracted to the way Shalamis spoke her mind, sharing her thoughts with ease and confidence. It made me feel secure enough to open up and share my own opinions. With Shalamis, I could let my guard down and be myself. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what dating is all about. That's what good dating is about. You could be yourself. And although others thought she might be too tall, or too old, or too outgoing for me, I didn't care what others thought, so long as I heard her heart and her respect. Key. This is key, ladies and gentlemen. Shalamis and I dated less than a month before getting engaged, and have been happily married for over 10 years. The lessons to be learned here are clear. Lesson number one. Let's learn. Have a short list. Make time for self-reflection and create a short list of the fundamental qualities that you need in a spouse. I always tell everyone, create your top 10 list. If you need help with that, I've done it for people throughout the world. I can do it live or on WhatsApp. Just call me. Doing so will illuminate your search in Shadduchim. Ensure that your list contains no more than 3 or 4 qu- characteristics or criteria that you won't compromise on. Just be sure not to create a crazy, a crazy list as this will make finding the right person virtually impossible. Lesson number two. Don't fixate on numbers. Be flexible. Once you know what core qualities and values you want in a spouse, don't be rigid about superficial criteria like age or height. These are just superficial. Be open to meeting people with the qualities you're looking for who may be a little taller or a little shorter, a little older or a little younger. Allow yourself the opportunity to see if there's a connection, and be honest about whether you are comfortable with the age or height difference, rather than worrying about what others will think. That's called the yente trap. The yente trap is worrying what the enters are saying about you. I'll never forget when I flew in to give five lectures in California, and my host greeted me at the at the airport, and he looked so down. I said, I said, Yoshua, what's going on? He said, I'm working on a shidduch. The guy was up to date number 11. We thought we were there close to engagement. When he showed the picture of the girl to his first cousin, who looked at him and he said to him, you're going to go out with that ugly girl? He dropped the shidduch. He was going out, not for her, he was going out for what the enters had to say. You have to be comfortable with yourself. You have to be able to live with your own skin. You're going to be married to the person, not them. Lesson number three. Remember opposites attract. People often make assumptions that a girl may be too outspoken for a quiet guy, or a guy may be too simple for an intellectual girl. But the perfect matches are not always similar. I love opposites attract. I live by this motto. I always tell people, I can't put two pussycats in the room and two tigers. You've got to have one of each kind. Rather, they have qualities that complement each other. After all, if you and I are identical, why do I need you? I need someone to be different. The quiet Bakr might appreciate the girl's outgoing confidence, whereas the intellectual girl may be searching for a deep emotional connection with a guy. Don't presume to know what matches will or won't work. Give people a chance to connect. Now, let's get into character. Every individual is unique. Truthfully, some people are warmer than others, some people are kinder, some people are, war- are finer, some are more caring some are more loving, some are more generous, some are more patient, some are more understanding, some are more other-directed, some people are more helpful, some people are more considerate, some people are now on the less side, less temperamental, less jealous, less angry, less critical, less cynical, less spoiled, less demanding, less selfish, less vengeful, less frustrated, less stubborn, less rigid, less calmer, less happier individuals. However, however, the rule of thumb is no one is perfect. We all must work on our own faults, and that's part of life. And it doesn't end the day you give the ring to the collar. Negative personality qualities can be truly harmful to a relationship. An individual can hide his faults or her faults while dating, but they eventually will surface in marriage and can be terribly destructive, as we see from the incredible escalation of divorces in our society. And unfortunately, we in the Orthodox community are by no means immune. While a parent may adjust to or blindly accept a spoiled or jealous child, a husband or a wife may not be as willing to do so. They tolerated you, your parents. The wife or husband may not. And they'll send you packing. Inflexible, demanding, self-centered, manipulative individuals are the enemy of a happy marriage. An individual is extreme in any direction. He's too much of a neat freak or he's too much of a slob. He's a cheapskate or a thrift, and this could be the girl as well. Someone who is rigidly punctual, or someone who is never on time. You cannot be the end of the, of the parameters, right? You want to always try to shoot for the me- golden mean. An inflexible person who needs everything their way, his way or her way, or someone wholly carefree, can wreak havoc in a marriage. You never want to be any extreme, as the Rambam tells us. Somewhere in the Der said the golden mean, the golden middle, Torah. Good behavior comes before Torah. Hashem created man in His image, giving each of us the potential to replicate God. His character traits. As Hashem is merciful, we too must be merciful. As Hashem is forgiving, so we too must be forgiving. As Hashem visits the sick, so we must make the time for Berkucholim and visit the sick. As He is compassionate, so we must learn compassion and exercise it. By imitating Hashem's ways, we can properly learn to fashion ourselves and our behavior. As Hashem acts towards his beloved nation, so should we act towards our beloved nation as well. At the Qaeda, the binding of Yitzhak, on the altar, Hashem called out twice Avraham, Avraham. The rabbis complain why is Avraham's name repeated twice? You know why? Because Avraham lived to his potential. Becoming an identical match to the image Hashem had of Avram in heaven, isn't that amazing? That there's a picture of each of us in Shemayim, and that's the picture we're supposed to replicate. That Hashem has an expectation of us, and our job in this world is to be able to hit the ball that He he or She, that He Hashem has for uh, one of us, for us, whether it's uh, boy or girl. You've got to make sure that you're making the effort of becoming the identical match to the image Hashem has of you in heaven. Each of us, right, must try to become the good, caring, giving person Hashem wants each of us to become. A self-centered person reviews everything in terms of how it affects him or her rather than how it affects the, their spouse and their marriage is asking for that marriage to fail and fail big time. Molly had three kids, a full-time job and a home to run. Larry expected dinner heated to the correct temperature and on the table when he walked through the door. He could not accept that as hard as she tried, she could not guarantee that the food would be warm to his exact specifications when he came home. Barry's self-centered rigidity did not let him realize that circumstances such as a child crying or the need to finish a project for work could easily throw things off and throw off her timing. Barry took it as a personal offense, refusing to believe it had anything to do with Molly's respect for him. He believed that if she really wanted to please him, she could do it. Unrealistic demands like that led to the demise of their marriage and eventually to divorce. Why did it have to be that way? Because he wasn't caring and compassionate. Because he didn't give her the benefit of the doubt. You have to love the person the way they are. If you think your spouse is irrational about something, arguing with them will still upset them and cannot hear you, that's not good. If you are certain you're being rational, you can mention that you are still uncomfortable, but only when the spouse is calm validate their feelings I understand that you feel upset I understand it bothers you and then try to explain to them why it can or cannot be done I see you're upset you should tell them I realize you're unhappy with the situation I'm sorry things did not work out the way you had hoped and I'm sorry if you feel that you, you feel that I, I misunderstood you when at least one person in the marriage has a healthy attitude the marriage can be a good one with time and effort this person can help the partner understand many issues more clearly and with less confrontation To make a marriage work, each partner must know themselves. Know yourself, know your strengths, know your weaknesses. And take responsibility and own up to your character flaws. You must choose to overcome your negative influences or experiences that have affected your character and self-esteem. Case in point, today I was dealing with another couple where we're talking about, he's on anti-anxiety medication. And he owned up to it. And he said the reason is because my mother died when I was 15 years old. It was hard to me. I couldn't deal with it. It spun me out of control. Since then I had anxiety. But I went to the doctor. I'm dealing with it. And I'm also taking therapy. He owned up to it. And the girl said, I'm so proud of you that you had the ability and the honesty and the integrity to tell us this. That's a person that I admire. That's a person we all admire. Learning to accentuate your best qualities and control your negative ones will make you a better person and a better spouse. Ladies and gentlemen, that means that you are studying Musr when you're married to ensure that you don't think that it's autopilot. That once you enter a marriage, it's over in terms of self-growth. Self, self you've got to be working on yourself all the time. Improving your character. Channeling your talents and passions to do things that make you feel happy and fulfilled. Do things you've always wanted to do. Take up a sport. Take up a, a passion of yours. Join a band. Go to classes. Enrich yourself. Enrich your mind. Enrich your talents. Use your talents. It will also do wonders for your self-esteem. When you are happy, it is easier to accept other people and appreciate them and enjoy them. You can also channel your negative character traits in positive ways. Rather than being jealous of another person's possessions, learn to be jealous of their good deeds and imitate them. Instead of being jealous of their new car or their new kitchen, be jealous of the fact that they do Bikr Cholim every week, or they they go and deliver Shabbos food for poor people. An angry person can take up an unjust cause fighting for justice. If you recognize qualities in yourself that you find that you need to fix in a positive way, determine that you'll do that. You can change when you notice how those qualities are affecting your relationship. Change is possible, but only if you do it. And change is the six-letter word that frightens most people. Work on yourself to be a giving, caring person. You'll love yourself and make it easier for others to like and respect you. A person who's accepting and even-tempered will be a giver and able to adjust, is happy with themselves, is happy with himself, is happy with herself. Working on your self-esteem enables you to compliment other people, be less competitive, and be less prone to misinterpret the partner's statements. Because if I'm comfortable with myself, then I'm not bothered by things that are said or I can misinterpret. People misinterpret things easily. Those are the people who have self-esteem issues, who right away jump to the gun. What did you mean by that? How did you, what did you mean when you did that? Of course, this makes marriage easier for both spouses when people are working on confidence and self-esteem. People are always dissatisfied, wanting more love, more power, more children, more attention, more recognition, more, more of this. will never be happy. Achieving real happiness and working on your own joy will also make your partner happy. And in order to be happy, every person must be passionate about something, whether it's your marital success, whether it's monetary success, moral success, prestige, religion, and so on. But you have to be passionate about something. This is one of the things I daven for every day. I ask Hashem to give me the passion to enjoy helping people getting getting married. Right? Your struggles that you engage in as you try to achieve your desires will give you a sense of satisfaction. Be passionate about the right things and this will bring you joy. Okay, let me share a beautiful story with you. I'm going we'll close with that. My parents are very fine religious people who raised us well. Our home was in the holy city of Jerusalem. We were a dream family. Then one of my brothers, I'll call him Davi, started going off the derech. It started with some questionable friends. Then he seemed to have, be home too much, too often. When all the good boys were in school, something was wrong. Why is Davi home? He then changed the way he dressed. And the way he spoke, eventually his whole conduct was not that of a nice, from religious boy. My parents tried to reach out to him. My mother, Davin, went to rabbis and lit candles for his sake, hoping all the time to see him back on the right path. My parents deliberated long and hard about the effect he might have on the other kids. And there were many other children, and they were afraid of the influence that he would have on the other kids. It was painful to watch them struggle, but we admired them all the more for their decision to embrace Davi as he was and never make him feel as if he was no, no longer belonged in the house. Time went by, and everyone got used to the idea that there was one off-the-derach kid in our otherwise typical religious family. Any worries we had about how he would affect our shidduchim disappeared when my eldest sister got engaged to a fine yeshiva boy. And shortly afterward, I found my match as well. I'd like to send that as a message of encouragement to families dealing with similar situations who may have children in their homes that are not exactly fitting the mold religiously. Whole families don't necessarily get labeled by the actions of one sibling. A number of years ago, on July 2nd, 2008, Dovey was wandering around Jaffa Road in Yerushalayim. He was 18 years old at the time. and had nothing else better to do with his empty mornings since he dropped out of school. Suddenly he saw something very strange. Now listen to what happened. A tractor trailer working at a nearby building site veered straight into the road, wildly zigzagging, then plowed into a bus stop at full speed, running over the people waiting there. My brother was sure this was a terrible accident. But then he saw that the driver kept going, this time ramming into a full bus in the opposite lane, turning the whole bus over. My brother couldn't believe his eyes. But there was no room for doubt as the driver, an Arab, continued his deadly rampage. My brother wanted to run and warn drivers on the road, but it was useless. The area looked like a battlefield with crushed cars, wounded and dead people, blood everywhere. And in the midst of it all, the monstrous tractor still going full speed. Then he noticed something that made his blood run cold. A few feet away from them, a woman was trapped by crushed cars on all sides. The tractor was coming directly at her, and yes, yet she did not get out of the car. Coming closer, my brother saw she was desperately trying to grab at something in the back seat. Her baby! He was trapped securely in his baby seat, and she was frantically trying to release him and save them both. My brother ran over to them as fast as he could. The tractor was looming over them, getting dangerously close, as it flattened the cars that stood in its way. The woman had just unclasped the seatbelt and shouted to my brother, Take the baby! My brother grabbed the baby through the open window. As he ran, he heard the horrifying sound of crushed metal. And the woman screams as she was caught in a death trap that was the twisted wreck of her car. She was killed instantaneously. He could not afford to stop running now. Breathless and terrified, he found the policeman who told him to wait in his police car until things cleared up. Outside, the terrifying drama continued to unfold. Policemen were chasing the zigzagging tractor, trying to shoot the driver with her, without hurting innocent people or getting run over themselves. Long minutes passed before the mad murder spree finally ended with a bullet to the killer's head. It was a quiet while until the policemen returned to the car to find the young man with the baby still sitting there. Oh, it's you! Where would you like me to drop you off now? If it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. An 18-year-old boy had just rescued a baby at great personal risk. He had seen the baby's mother crushed to death Her screams mingled with gunshots are still echoing in his ears, and he's asked, where should I drop you off? Take me home, Dovey said. That's exactly what the policeman did, and all he did. No questions asked. He dropped Dovey off, baby and all, in front of our building, and he just drove away. My brother burst into the house. Ima, take care of the baby! He yelled, handing him to her, as he finally broke down in deep hysterical cries and sobs. My mother sent me to get everything the baby might need, from diapers to baby food. She bathed him and put him to bed and only then inquired gently about the circumstances of the surprising arrival. We couldn't believe our ears when we heard the explanation. But the baby was no figment of his imagination, so we accepted that the rest of Dovey's Davi, story was actually true. Since we were rarely t- tuned on the, turned on the radio, this was the first we heard of the whole incident. They didn't know. They don't have newspapers in the house. They don't do radio. So they basically got no idea that there was a massive terrorist attack that day. After a few phone calls to relatives who filled us in on the news, we realized that the whole country was in an uproar about the terror attack. The story of the casualties, the wounded. The story of the young Moshe Pelzer, a civilian who climbed onto the tractor in direct line of crossfire and shot the terrorist point blank in the head. This was a hero. No one said anything about the story of the 18-year-old boy who jumped in the path of destruction, Davi, and rescued a six-month baby. The story wasn't told because no one knew there was a baby. They knew a woman had been killed in a car, but did not know how to, to search for the baby. My brother, slightly calmer now, sat watching the sleeping baby. We have to call the police. His father must be looking for him, my mother said. My father called, but no one at the police station had heard of any queries about a baby or the mother. They sent social services over to our house, and the social workers asked many questions, some quite probing questions. They allowed us to keep the baby until his family was found, or some other arrangement could be made. Couldn't figure out who the baby belonged to. Did you imagine? The next day they found out the identity of the mother. Unfortunately, sadly, tragically, she was a new Russian immigrant, whose non-Jewish husband had run away to Russia after the birth of the son. She had no relatives in Israel except for her elderly mother. She had bought the baby's car seat minutes earlier in a nearby store and drove away not knowing this was to be her last journey in life. She risked both her own and her baby's life by lingering to to try and save the baby. But her Jewish mother's heart would not let her save herself and let her baby die. She paid with her life, but her sacrifice would have been in vain if not for my brother appearing out of nowhere and grabbing him a split second before it was too late. The story found its way to the back pages of some weekend newspapers in the novelty news section. For an entire week, Davi never left the baby's side. He got up to feed and soothe him at night. He played with him and tried to make him laugh and bonded deeply with him. And at the end of that week, social services showed up again and said the grandma was not ready to take the child. My brother found himself protesting that he couldn't take the baby away from him, but they smiled and said, of course they could and they must. He would soon get over it. The baby was entrusted to the care of his elderly grandmother, who had just gotten up from Shiva and wasn't sure what exactly to do with the baby. It had been a long time since she cared for one, and as his mother was only her only child. For his part, Davi did not get over it. Even after some time had passed, the bond he felt was as strong as ever. So he went to visit his baby at the grandma's house. What he saw there did not comfort him at all. He called the social worker and tried to explain that with all her goodwill, the grandma simply couldn't give the child the care that the child needed. Definitely nothing like the mother's care. Again, they told him to let it go. But he continued to persist. He was convinced that the grandma herself would agree if she only, only she was asked that she should not be raising this child at her age. Finally, they did ask and found that my brother was right. Social, social services told them that they would find a family who could care for the baby. I want to adopt him myself, Davi told one of the social workers. She thought that was awfully sweet, but ridiculous. You don't really think a single young man can adopt a baby, do you? So I'll get married and give him a proper home, he told social services. Even if that's possible, the baby needs a proper home right now. My mother will take care of him until then, he told social services. You better make sure that you will be willing to do that, warned the social worker. I'll ask her, Davi said. Davi told my mother it would be simple. Really? I'll take care of him myself? I just need some help from you. <clears throat> sure, said my mother. Sure, you can raise a child. You get up at 2 in the afternoon and go to sleep at 4 in the morning. Your friends will be great role models. Do you think it's so easy to raise a child? No, son. He's not a doll. He's a real child who needs real guidance. Could you give him that? My brother was silent for a few minutes and then he said, I'll go back to Yeshiva. I'll get up every morning and go to shul. I'll learn Torah again. I'll make myself into a mensch. As long as you're willing to take care of this baby and take him in. I need to do this. I can't abandon him, ima." It was a surprising proposal, but my parents accepted. For the next two years, we raised the child as one of us, and my my brother grew along with him. His suit and hat reappeared, suddenly started wearing his suit again, his black hat again. The rabbis were encouraging, and every night after his evening learning session, my brother came home to his special little buddy. He gradually started to teach him to say mode'ani, to wash his hands, picking up many practices he himself had dropped along the way when he went off to derech even lined the script with pictures of tzaddikim. At 20, Davi felt, I'm ready for shidduchim. It wasn't easy, because he would always tell the girl on the first date, that I have a child. At what? The horrified girls would, would gasp. What are you talking about? A child? The boy, I mean, not really my child. I adopted a child. You? You adopted a child? The girls would ask him? And then he would tell them the whole heart-wrenching story. When the girl heard the tale, she would, move, she would be moved, Of course. And she would think it was totally, incredibly selfless of David to undertake to raise a baby. But marrying into in such a situation was a different matter. Not too many girls were willing to inst- instantly become a mother to a two-year-old. And the few who were were not a good match for the baby, my brother said. Finally, she was found. The one in a million. An Khal worth searching for. A wonderful, a deep girl who thought the baby was the best thing about my brother. But I asked to meet him to see if they were a good match. That was what made my brother realize she was the one for him as well, and they got married. It's just over five years since Davi first met his baby, and two and a half years since he got married. He now has a six-year-old and a two-year-old who love their parents dearly. My brother learns full-time, and his loyal wife, my beloved sister-in-law, supports him in every way. They look like a typical young religious family, Colel husband, Teacher, wife. But those who know the story admire Dovey and his wife, knowing they're much more than just a regular couple. This is a special couple. No one puts it better than my brother, as he says, every year. On the 29th of Sivan, when we celebrate our double miracle, everyone thinks, I saved this child. But Dovey says, I know deep inside, he saved me. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming to tonight's Dating In Shalom Bayis class. Anyone out there locally or anywhere in the world who'd like my help in dating with Shaduchim or Shalom Bayes who needs help in evaluating a relationship or needs help getting a matchmaker, I do all that. Feel free to reach out to me at 305-206-1916. 305-206-1916, either on WhatsApp or on texting or call me. Have a wonderful week and a great Shabbos. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.